Good morning, everyone. Peace be with you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights, and today, as Colleen said, we're continuing our sermon series through Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And what we have said for many weeks now is that the fundamental issue in Corinth was division in the church. And so Paul's letter is fundamentally an appeal for unity. And today we've come to one of the most uh, memorable portions of the Bible. No doubt you recognize it, uh, read often at weddings, anniversaries, uh, special occasions. It's come to stand as one of the greatest passages on love. And it most certainly is beautiful, poetic, uh, almost hymn-like in its writing. But as we're going to see today, we actually can't read it as if it were only a rhapsodic soliloquy on human love. Because what Paul is talking about is actually far more wonderful and far deeper than we can imagine. So to give us some context, in chapter 12 last week, Paul wrote that God's spirit has apportioned gifts to the church. God has been gracious and kind to the world to give gifts of his spirit. And then in chapter 14, next week we'll look at that, he's gonna talk about the specific uses and ordering of those gifts. Uh, So we have the, the giving of the gifts, the apportionment of the gifts, and then we have the use and order of the gifts in the life, the corporate life and worship of the church. But here wedged in the middle in chapter 13, Paul tells us that in order for those gifts, for those gifts of the Spirit to be of any value, something greater has to be present, and it's love. So we'll look at three points this morning. Number one, love is vital. Without it, every gift of the Spirit is nothing. Love is selfless. Uh, It's more aware of others and draws attention away from itself. Uh, And number three, love is forever. It is eternal and it will outlast every other gift. If you will remember a uh, number of weeks ago, <clears throat> we, uh, we saw Paul write to the Corinthians and tell them that they are God's field uh, and that God has intended to cultivate them in such a way that they will become a thriving, fruitful vineyard uh, with choice fruits to eat, while also at the same time calling each one of us, each one of these Uh, Corinthian Christians to be faithful gardeners in that field. Um, And he tells them, be careful. Be careful how you plant. Be mindful and thoughtful of how you build because the foundation that you build on, Paul says, is Jesus Christ and his gospel. In other words, the foundation that you're building on is love. So with that said, let's look at the text in verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The Corinthian church, this The Corinthian church was incredibly divided, but it was also incredibly gifted. They were dealing, this is a church that was dealing with rampant idolatry. 
deceit and factions and divisions and sexual immorality. Members were so at odds with one another that there was regular jealousy and envy and anger. They were taking one another to court in lawsuits. This was a church that was dealing with deep and damaging sin. And yet, this is where my mind reels a little bit, the Corinthian church was also outfitted with tremendous gifts. Imagine this, a a people that were this divided and yet there were miracles and prophecy and discernment of spirits. There were people who were teaching with eloquence and wisdom and rhetoric and intrigue. They were healing, people were getting healed, sick people were getting healed, possibly even people raised from the dead. Speaking in tongues and teaching and miracles abounded. Does that not seem crazy? Does that not seem to be, does that seem to not make a lot of sense to be that divided and yet that gifted? Because at first glance, when I saw this, I just think, well, I would say that the Corinthian church doesn't get to enjoy anything of God with this kind of division. And yet, it's very good that I'm not the one who decides how God apportions his grace. Though it may seem like a love poem that Paul is writing, it's actually a rebuke. Because he goes over the top here to make the point that not all is well just because the gifts are present. That's not what the Corinthian church can rely on. It's not what we can rely on. In fact, there is a vital component missing that he wants to point out. And he says it this way in these verses. He goes over the top. He says, if I had, if I spoke every language, if I was able to speak to every person on the earth, not only that, if I had if I had the ability to speak to the heavenly host of angels surrounding the throne room of God, if I was able to have that kind of speech and language and communication, but I had no love, it would be meaningless noise. It would amount to nothing. Okay, if, if I knew everything, if I knew all things, if I knew the intricacies of every mystery of life in heaven and on earth, if I had faith so deep and wide and unmoving that I could actually move everything else, but I didn't have love, then I'm not just immature, I'm not just inexperienced, I'm nothing. If I give up everything that I have, if I give everything of mine away until it's all gone, and then I give over my own body, my life as a living sacrifice with decades of evangelism and service in the hope that on the day I died, I would be able to boast over having done more than was asked of me, but I didn't have love. I won nothing. I gained nothing. If I give my money away without giving my heart away, I gain nothing. It's encouraging, isn't it? Is it? Are you feeling the encouragement here? Paul is doing this, though, to jar us, to jar the Corinthians with this hyperbole because, see, in, in Corinth, status, knowledge, power, wisdom, ability, these were the pursuits 
It was an honor culture. It was about, life was about these things. It was about securing more of these things by whatever means possible. That was the city itself, and the church was heavily influenced by the city. So the church here, is, Paul can see that they're starting to employ God's gifts for personal gain. And Paul says, if the gifts of the Spirit are meant to be used for personal gain, they are immediately stripped of love. They're immediately stripped of the purpose that they're supposed to serve. Because the Spirit is always working for the common good. That's what we learned a few weeks ago. It is the Spirit, the the gifts of the Spirit are not at work for the glory of the individual human being. Knowledge stripped of love is arrogant. Wisdom stripped of love is injurious. Miracles without love is just ostentatious. That is why love is vital to the gifts of the Spirit. You could be the most gifted person in the known universe, but you are nothing if you don't give your heart away in love. If, I, if after this gathering, a hundred people come up to me and tell me that this was the most amazing sermon they've ever heard, and it happens all the time. Um, <laughs> But then I go home to my family and I engage my wife and my children with a cold, unloving heart. I am nothing. I've won nothing. I've secured nothing. I've gained nothing. Essentially, I preached nothing. Paul is showing us that it is possible, and really, really hear me on this, Paul is showing us that it's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit and not be submitted to Jesus at all. It is possible for us to use the gifts that the Spirit has given in their fullest, to the fullest extent, and yet our hearts could at the same time grow cold and distant from God and one another. If you don't believe me, listen to Jesus' words from Matthew 7. It says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You see, it is possible for a divided church to see and enjoy the regular and incredible gifts of the Spirit and yet not know God or receive his saving grace. It is easy to conflate the two. We could say, and maybe we say often, I'm using my gifts, I'm using my gifts well. God must be pleased with me. And Paul says, no, that's not true. That's not the evidence of God's pleasure. God doesn't pour out his gifts in the world because we've been good. He pours out his gifts in the world because he's good. So the caliber and effectiveness of our gifts is not what makes us right with God. The gifts themselves do not have the power to change our hearts, and that's what Paul says matters in this kingdom. It matters who we're becoming. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, if a person is gifted to work miracles or to speak in tongues, this power does not change their inherent nature. A giftability does not require a change of heart as love or holiness does. A person's holiness does not consist in their gifts. Rather, 
Gifts are like a beautiful garment of precious jewels with which the body may be adorned, but it does not alter the nature of the one who wears it. It is the grace of God and its fruit that turns the human soul itself into a precious jewel. You see what Paul and Jonathan Edwards are saying? They're saying that the fruit of the Spirit is better than the gifts of the Spirit. They're greater than the gifts of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is true evidence of a changed and loving heart. So what are the gifts of the Spirit? Paul wrote in Galatians, letter to another church, he said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. See, this, this describes not only a love that's vital, but that's selfless. Do you see these layers? Love, affection, brotherly and sisterly affection, enjoyment of one another, warmth, friendship, hospitality, humility, sacrifice, goodness, joy, mercy, meekness. These are the things that are supernatural. These are the things that describe love, a love that is selfless. Let's keep reading in verse four. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This may, this may seem tangential, but bear with me. Corinth was a leading producer of brass, and in the pagan temples, worshipers would hit large sheets of brass as they prayed, believing that if they hit the brass loud enough, that God would hear them that it would get God's attention, or at least it would get the attention of fellow worshipers. And that's what Paul was pointing out when he talked about clanging cymbals. He was saying, if you try to gain anything through the display of your own personal gifting to get the attention of God or people, you won't be able, you're not, and you won't be able to cultivate love in your heart because a loving heart has been freed from seeking its own attention. It's been freed to love selflessly. And then, so we ask, well, what does a selfless love look like? And that's why Paul describes it here. And if you, if you read the text again, it's almost like he's talking about a person. Love lives in patience. It doesn't retaliate in anger. It doesn't rush to a judgment as soon as it sees a logical conclusion, it waits. It keeps going. It tries again and again and again. It's a love that often appears to be imposed upon, exploited, taken advantage of, and walked on. It's kind and it's full of service to others. It notices others. It looks at others. It sees others. It's tender and thoughtful and it both considers and is considerate. It anticipates what others need. Love is glad. Love is glad for the graces in someone else's life. 
It doesn't compare. It sees what it's been given, not what has been withheld. It doesn't brag. It doesn't push its way to the front. It does not elbow for position. It overlooks insults. It takes insults. It does not keep a ledger of offenses. It is not easily offended. Hear that one again. It is not easily offended. It does not hold grudges. It doesn't get angry quickly. It gets angry slowly. It's never bitter. It's never resentful. And love, this is very important, love rejoices with the truth. That means that love knows that there is a relationship between love and truth. And truth knows that there's a relationship between love and truth. Truth takes joy in love, and love takes joy in truth. Together, love and truth produce joy. Love refuses to take joy in what God calls sin. It bears everything. It believes everything. It hopes everything. It endures everything. Now, believing all things doesn't mean that it's gullible. It means that it's not cynical. It's not, well, we'll see how it goes. No, it hopes that things will go well. It believes that God will do something even with the most unfortunate situation. Selfless love wants it to go well with other people. This love does not lower its expectations to protect itself. It bears all things by believing and hoping. That word bears is kind of like a house. It bears, it covers, it insulates, it surrounds. Like a mother with her young. This is a love that puts up with a great deal. It bears without muttering. It endures without grumbling. It is rugged, gritty, resilient, and deep. It endures and bears without losing hope or faith or trust and it leaves emotional and romantic love in the dust. If every other love is a candle, this love is the sun. And when the gifts of the Spirit are used with this kind of love, the gifts of the Spirit become gardening tools in God's vineyard that produce beautiful and lasting fruit for everyone to enjoy, for everyone to eat. It's very important for us to know that God doesn't just want a more gifted church. He wants those gifts to be used to cultivate the fruit of love and joy and peace and humility and kindness. For those of you, I shouldn't say you, for those of us, for those of us who feel that we're particularly gifted, also those of us who are particularly gifted, <laughs> both. Maybe it's better for us to ask, more importantly, how are my gifts being used? How are my gifts benefiting the body? How about this? How about more than am I known for my gifts? Am I known for my love? Maybe you feel particularly gifted, but ask someone around you, do, do you feel loved by me? Do you feel cared for by me? Do you notice patience and joy and kindness in my life? 
the answer to those questions is probably more important than am I really, really gifted? Many people identify and assess a church by its posture towards the gifts of the Spirit. Are we, do we believe that all the gifts are used? Do we, leave, do we believe only a portion of the gifts are used? Are we charismatic? Is this church spirit-filled? Is this church reformed? And those are fine questions. Those are good questions. We should ask them. But the primary question that we should ask ourselves, that you should ask yourself when you're considering, is this a good church, or are we a healthy church, is are we marked as a people by love? Are we marked as a people by patience and kindness and forbearance? Because that's probably how we'll know more if God is present and at work on who we're becoming. For those of you who believe that maybe you're less gifted or you feel like you're not gifted, I would have a lot of issue with that, but let's go ahead and say maybe you're not the most articulate speaker, maybe you're not the best leader, but growing in kindness by the power of the Spirit, you could be a place of incredible safety for people who don't feel safe, who feel unheard, who feel unknown. Maybe you think, I'll never be a leader. I'll never be asked to teach. I'll never be asked. With growing humility and love, you could influence countless numbers of people. See, when we use our gifts to get God's attention or praise, when we bang the symbols with our gifts, it's like, it's the equivalent of like polishing our shovel or our watering can while the garden that we're med to tend is dying. It's of no good to have the best shovel that money can buy if it's not being put to the good and the use and the life of the garden it's meant to care for. Now please hear me, the gifts are limited. They are not the truest grace. But the grace of God at work in a person's heart, there lies endless potential for grace at work in our hearts. That's why love is the greater miracle, because it is limitless. On our best days, we long to give this kind of love. On our worst days, we long to receive this kind of love. This is the kind of love that has the chance to change the whole world. These fruit of the Spirit, this is what is going to change the world. And yet when we do read this passage, we're struck with the reality that this love does not reside in us. Why can't we do it? If we're so convinced, our world is convinced, all you need is love. Love will keep us together. Love lifts us up where we belong. We can go on and on, but those See, those are words, and words without action become unbelievable over time. Now, why can't we do it? It's because the Corinthians were not the first to fall prey to jealousy and idolatry. Now, that's an ancient story. It goes way, way back. Because, see, selfishness is what broke love in the first place. 
all the way back in the garden when God created everything, and he created everything, man and woman and creation, in perfect, loving harmony, selfless love that was shared and enjoyed. But Adam and Eve were deceived into thinking that they could become greater than they were by trying to become like God in power and wisdom and knowledge and ability, and when they sought to become equal to God, perfect love and perfect peace and patience and kindness were ended. They were broken. They were lost. And in our sin and their sin, we could never reclaim that perfect love with God. Again, we were lost. We were doomed. We were unlovable. See, Adam and Eve had no way to restore what was lost because that would have taken a monumental act of selfless love to undo what had been done. And that is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus came. He came down from heaven to love the unlovable, to show patience to the impatient, to show kindness to the unkind. But here's the deal. He was not driven down here by power, in power, he was, or by his holiness, just as the essence of Christianity is not power, but love, not gifts, but grace, so the essence of God is not his power, it's his love. How did he save us? Because he didn't, he didn't just die, he didn't just suffer. He wasn't just abandoned, he was cut off from the love of his Father. What would it be like for the Son of God to be cut off from his Father? We're talking a pain and anguish and despair that can't be measured. And the full weight of that was poured into his heart and his mind and on his body. And he died a gruesome and unfair death, but rose from that unfair death in victory over our selfishness to restore the love that was broken in the garden. And in that restoration, he freed us from the need to use personal gifts as our basis of standing with him. And Jesus did all of that because he loves us, because he loves you. He gave his heart away. He gave his life away. He gave it all away in love. And one day we will know this love restored in a wholeness and perpetuity. We will know these last verses. Love never ends. Love never falls. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall fully, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. One day, the less excellent gifts will pass away and cease. And we won't know anything in part. We will not see anything in part. We will know fully. In the same way that we have been fully known by God, we will see the Lord Jesus, our Savior and King, face to face. And it will be the end of this age. It will be 
the age that was like looking into a low-lit mirror made of brass. You can't see even yourself in that kind of a mirror, let alone anything else. And the gifts that we've enjoyed in this life will seem like child's play in the light of glory. As the hymn goes, prophecy will fade away, melting in the light of day. Love will ever with us stay, therefore give us love. Faith will vanish into sight, hope will be emptied in delight. Love in heaven will shine more bright, therefore give us love. But for now, faith, hope, and love, they will abide. They are the higher gifts. They are the more excellent ways. Sojourn, this church was founded on love. It will be built in love with the goal of love. Love is the greatest of these because it means that by all of us claiming the same Lord, we will love one another and not divide over issues of faith. How will they know that we're his disciples? By our teaching, by our wisdom? No, by how we love one another. Believing the same secondary doctrine is not the basis of our love. That would be true if faith were the greatest. We would need to agree on everything. But the basis of our love is Jesus and his gospel. We may give time and money and interest to our own gifting, but we will not give our hearts. Jesus came in love, and because of the love that he had, if this truth settles into us, we'll give him our hearts too. Let's pray. Holy and gracious Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your forgiveness in Christ. We thank you that now by faith, through grace, Father, that you have hid us in Christ and therefore you consider us as if we had always obeyed and as if we had never sinned. And Lord, while we have so much empirical evidence that that is not true, we we just stand in awe of, of your grace that says that it is true. Father, make us a people who are eager to use our gifts to till the soil of this vineyard that you are building here so that the church will be built up in love and that the fruit of the Spirit will be ripe, that we will pursue love and earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit that the gifts that you've given this body individually and corporately will be used, Lord, for the good of others, for your good pleasure, and to the end that we see more fruit born for your glory and the good of many. Father, please help us. We need you. May we be a people marked by the fruit of the Spirit. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.